Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. As I mentioned, we are going through the book of Esther. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, and if you haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, in this reading we're going to have this morning, so Josh is going to be bringing us this message uh, from the middle of Esther. But uh, there's a couple of characters I feel like I should introduce in case you haven't been around. There's this guy called Haman. Haman's a bad guy. Hates God. Hates God's people. There's another guy, Mordecai, who loves God. He's a Jew. He's part of God's family there in the Old Testament. Two key people, Haman and Mordecai. And we're going to learn about them a bit more this morning. But our Bible reading comes from uh, Esther chapter 5, reading from verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the, way the, all the ways the king had honoured him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. That's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king, ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Thanks, Josh. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, really excited to be back and looking at God's Word together. Uh, let's pray before we start. Uh, Heavenly Father... Um, as we read your word today, uh, please give us your guidance. Help us learn about your love for us. Please give us peace and understanding and the humility to follow your instruction. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you're probably aware of what's going on in uh, the Ukraine right now. Uh, it's been going on for a while. Everyone's talking about the war over there. And pretty much everyone you ask agrees that Russia is in the wrong. Now, in my lifetime, my short lifetime, I hope, uh, it's been a few conflicts over the globe, but I don't personally remember seeing the level of support for, for any other nation like we've seen the support for Ukraine. Um, now, I don't just mean you know, the government reactions, but the very public and personal support shown by everyday people like you and me. Uh, people raising their flag all over the world, and it's on people's houses and businesses and, and even on their social media, uh, putting Ukraine flags in their profile pictures. 
And we have to ask, why is that? Why, what's made everyone so eager to pick a side in this particular war? Well, I think it has more to do with what we see in the Russian forces. The picture many of us got was that they just saw the Ukraine, wanted it, and decided to take it. We heard the news headlines about how confident they were that they'd win quickly due to their superior weapons and clever strategies and, and also how justified they are in this invasion, going so far as to call Ukraine Little Russia. And I think that's why people are so happy to support Ukraine, because Russia, they kind of come across as very proud enemy, and we just hate to see the proud win, don't we? You know, I just hate it when you see someone being really, really smug about themselves, whether it's something as horrible as war or, or it's politics or even something as trivial as a board game, we hate to see pride in other people. Uh, but see, what's really more important is that God also hates pride. Uh, the Bible, God's Word, talks a lot about the dangers of pride. In Proverbs 16.5, it says, God detests the proud of heart. So if that's the case, where is God in Russia? And not just there, we see proud people succeeding everywhere we look. What's God going to do about all of them? What's God doing with the proud? Well, we'll find out today as we learn about a guy called Haman. Uh, if you're not familiar with Haman, uh, you should know he was an Agagite, it's called, uh, which basically means that he really, really, really hates the Jews. Uh, but we'll find out more about him soon. So, we're back in the Book of Esther, back in Susa, the capital of Persia, in the royal palace, and if you're following in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at chapters 5 all the way through to 7, and we're going to be moving quite quickly through the story, so hopefully you can keep up. So I'm going to slow down if I go too fast. Uh, chapter 5 starts with Queen Esther, and straight away we get this, this sense of her character because she's come before the king to ask him a favor. And in Persia, at this time, going before the king without being invited, as Esther is doing, could actually get you executed. But she's already decided that the favor she needs is worth the risk. So luckily the king decides not to kill his wife for approaching him, and Esther gets her request. She wants to invite the king and his most honored advisor to a banquet she prepared, and he accepts. Now, King Xerxes, he's an interesting guy. He, he loves to drink and party, uh, but mostly he just likes to show off. Uh, he offers Esther up to half the kingdom as a show of his generosity. In verse 6, at the banquet, he offers half the kingdom again, but Esther asks only for another banquet with both of them the following day, and the king graciously accepts. So after the party, the king's advisor, Haman, is heading home. He's feeling pretty good at you know, being invited to dine with the king and queen. It is a pretty high honor after all, but on his way home, he sees something that really, really spoils his night. It's Mordecai, the Jew. He's sitting at the king's gate. Now, if you missed last week, you should know that Mordecai, at this point, is actually in mourning. Uh, there's been a law written in, in Persia that says, on a certain day, all of the Jews of Persia will be killed. So, to show his grief, he's wearing sackcloth for clothes, he's covered himself in ashes, and he's wailing loudly and bitterly. And Haman sees him and becomes angry. Verse 9 says, When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. So what's got Haman so upset here? Well, 
to know that, we need to know what kind of guy he is. And from verse 10, we get a peek into Haman's home life. Uh, it's a bit of a weird scene, actually. When he gets home, he gathers his wife and friends, and then in verse 11, it says, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Now, I've only been married a, a short time, but if I spent the day feasting and drinking with royalty while my wife was at home, raising ten sons of mine, um, I might ask her how her day was when I got home. Uh, if I was really wise, I might even thank her for her sacrifice. But that's not who Haman is. Haman is proud. He needs everyone to know that he is wealthy and virile and of high status. Uh, it even says, yeah, he boasted in these things, which basically means he's giving the credit to himself for all of his good fortune. It's, it's such an ugly color to see on a person, isn't it? When they pat themselves on the back like that. He's basically come home saying, I'm great. Thank me. I'm welcome. <laughs> so we have this perfect example of pride through Haman. And what's really shocking is that this proud Haman actually seems to be quite blessed at this time. God tells us that Pride comes before destruction, but Haman's getting honored and promoted and invited to fancy dinners. It kind of looks like his pride is paying off. And how can that be? God hates the proud, and, and where is God in all this? Why isn't he fixing this? It's actually even worse when we realize Haman was actually the guy who wrote the law condemning the Jews to death. And he did it because one time, when he was being honored by the king, Mordecai the Jew refused to bow to him. So not only is he being raised up in society, but God's people, the Jews, are being directly threatened by Haman's growing power and his pride. And it's not enough for him that they're all scheduled to die later in the year because that one Jew, Mordecai, still hasn't bowed to him. In verse 14, Haman's wife suggests that he build a spike 20 meters high and have Mordecai impaled on it. Then he can go to the banquet tomorrow and be happy. Haman likes this idea, and he has the spike built. This is where the first act ends. So proud Haman is on top of the world, plans to kill Mordecai. The Jews are slated for destruction, and the only man who could help is King Xerxes, who spends most of his time drinking and taking bad advice. So how is God going to save his people? Well, chapter 6 is going to show us how. We've spoken about it before in this series. When God acts without miracles, when we see God's plan in the, just in the everyday things of our lives, when things seem to work out in helpful and instructive ways in accordance with God, it's called providence. So keep God's providence in mind through this chapter. We're with Xerxes. It's the same night uh, after the, the first banquet. The first thing we notice is the king can't sleep. Now, maybe that alone is not so unusual, but may become important in hindsight, just saying. Uh, the king has likely had a nightcapper or two at this point, so to help him sleep, he orders the Book of Chronicles read to him. Probably a really, really thick and boring book. Sounds like a good sleeping pill. Uh, but it just so happens that this particular entry read to him is actually it's an exciting one. See, in verse 2, they read him the record of how Mordecai, the Jew, uncovered assassins within the king's court, saving the king's life. 
And what's even more exciting uh, is the fact that it just so happens again, Mordecai the Jew hasn't been rewarded for this. Wait, how did that even happen? We, we, we know how much King Xerxes loves to show off his generosity through lavish rewards. How did he forget to honor Mordecai until now? Well, whatever the reason, the king wants to set it right. He asks, who is in the court? And it just so happens that Haman is standing in the court. He's, he's come to talk to the king about how he'd like to kill Mordecai. Remember, he just happened to see him later that night, and it made him mad. So that's why he's here. Anyway, they bring in Haman, and the king asks a sort of oddly vague and, and misleading question. In verse 6, he asks very cryptically to Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? He doesn't mention Mordecai or the assassination plot. He doesn't really give a lot of information in the question. So, proud Haman, logically, assumes the king wants to honor him. And you can imagine how happy he is right now. He, he thinks this is his lucky day. The king's going to give him whatever honor he asks for. And it sounds like he already had a wish list ready. He, he didn't hesitate. Verse 8, Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head, and let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe him and lead him on the horse through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And wow, what a, requ what, what a request, excuse me. Uh, you should know that asking to wear the robes of a king was a pretty big deal in this day and age. Uh, in many cultures, to be given clothing worn by the king was considered the highest honor, sometimes even implying that you were honored above the king, as though he's saying, here, take my robes, you're more worthy to rule. When Haman asks to be paraded around in the king's clothes, on the king's horse and led by his highest servant, he's basically saying he should be king, or at least look like one. So that's what proud Haman asks for. And the king loves this idea. He says in verse 10, go at once, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. And Haman must be beaming right now. He's, he's about to have the recognition and praise he really deserves. This is going to be the highlight of his career. And then the king finishes his sentence. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. That's, that's got to hurt. Imagine describing your own wish list, your, your personal ideal reward, whatever you'd like to receive most. Imagine someone actually gets it. They, they listen to you, they get it, they wrap it up, they, they, they get it all nice and they give it to you and they say, here, give this to your nemesis. It's for them. <laughs> How humiliating. And he has no choice but to carry out the order. So here's Haman, a proud enemy of the Jews, a man who puts himself above all others, even the king, being made to honor Mordecai, his least favorite Jew, in front of the whole city. He has to act as his servant and praise him openly in the name of the king. And this is where we can start to see what God is doing with Haman. In one chapter, God has taken this proud man with, with high status in society and reduced him to serve his enemy. Haman put himself first in everything. God made him last, in his own eyes at least. And how did God do this? 
He didn't appear to Xerxes in a vision and, and change his heart. He didn't use a, a miracle to elevate Mordecai. Really, the events just sort of unfolded on their own. A bunch of little coincidences that resulted in, well, God's will being done. And when that happens, um, that's what we call providence. Now, all of this is a, a terrible blow to Haman's ego, but unfortunately, it hasn't really hurt his cause. He's still favored by the king. He's still in power, and the Jews are still going to be slaughtered. And he plans to kill Mordecai even sooner. We've seen God take a proud man and humble him, and, and that's great. But the Bible says pride goes before destruction. And that's really what we're after here. We don't just want to see Haman embarrassed. We want to see him actually punished for his pride. And in chapter 7, that's just what we get. So we're back at the palace at Queen Esther's second banquet in two days. It's probably music playing and the wine is flowing and the three of them, they're having a great time. Xerxes, likely happy because there's wine. Uh, Haman, he had a rough day, but we know he was looking forward to this party, not to mention looking forward to killing Mordecai later. And Esther, well, she might have something else on her mind tonight. So after a few drinks, the king, as usual, offers Esther up to half the kingdom. And it's kind of an inside joke between these two now, isn't it? A bit of a callback. <laughs> but uh, as usual, when offered half the kingdom, she, uh, she doesn't take it. But she does ask for something else. Something that catches both the king and Haman by surprise. In verse 3, she asks for the king to grant her life and spare her people. Now, you and I know what she's talking about. But these two, they would have no idea. See, neither the king nor Haman realized that Esther was Jewish. So the penny still hasn't dropped for them. And the king has to ask, where is this man who has dared do such a thing? And in verse 6, Esther says, the enemy is this vile Haman. Suddenly the party stops. The mood has shifted. Haman realizes and is terrified. The queen is a Jew. He's conspired to kill the queen. This law he put in place to kill all the Jews is an act against the queen and, by extension, his majesty, the king. In verse 7, the king gets up in a rage, and you know he's really angry because he puts his wine down. And he storms out into the garden to collect himself. Now, Haman, he's no idiot. He knows what's coming. He knows he won't keep his station after this if he even keeps his life. He sees his opportunity, Esther. If he can just get through to her, he can save his own life. If he can convince her to help, the king might listen. And he must have been running over to her couch to beg her, because as the king comes back into the room, Haman falls onto Queen Esther. And if the king had calmed down at all outside, I think this pretty much sealed it. The king accuses Haman of molesting the queen, and before Haman can protest, the guards cover his face. And it just so happens that an attendant mentions the 20-meter uh, the spike that Haman built for Mordecai, and the king says, impale him on it. And the chapter ends in verse 10, they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Now, we asked earlier, what's God doing with the proud? And we can see in this story exactly what he does. First, we're shown what pride is in Haman, 
that it's basically choosing ourselves over others. It's all about my life and my decisions and my happiness. It's thinking too highly of ourselves, really. Uh, Next, we see the way God acts through providence, all those little details and apparent coincidences that are so easy to ignore. Um, But looking back, uh, so obviously part of God's well-laid plans. It's so important that when we're looking for God's actions in our lives, we don't ignore the everything around us. Nothing is outside of God's plans or out of His control. And when God's control moves to act against the proud, it's to bring humility and ultimately punishment. So what do we do with this? Well, number one, stop being proud. It's that easy, right? Just switch it off. Just don't be, don't be a Haman. But not only is it not that easy, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. When, when we look at this story in the book of Esther, we do see a story of God punishing the proud through His providence. But what we gain from reading it is a bit of a lesson in perspective. See, when we zoom in on the story and just look at Haman in the beginning, it actually looks like he's winning. Looks like pride is working out for him and he's in control. He has money, he has respect and the power to kill his enemies. But when you zoom out and see his life for what it is, we can see God is in control and has been the whole time. God addressed the pride in Haman's life. God humbled him and elevated his servant, Mordecai, And ultimately, God punished Haman with death. And that's the real story of what's going on here. The details are wonderfully interesting up close, but when we look from the right perspective, we see God is the one in control, dealing with our pride. Perspective is what's needed to see God's providence. And nowhere is it more clearly illustrated than on the cross. When our Lord Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, most onlookers just saw Jesus being mocked and tortured and murdered by his enemies. They, they saw a day of victory for the proud and boastful as they taunted Jesus on the cross. But when you zoom out all the way to Judgment Day, you see that Jesus' death was actually the greatest victory ever won. By dying on the cross and paying for our sins, he gave us a way back to God. And ultimately, the proud are all punished because we only receive this gift by being humble enough to repent and accept forgiveness from Him. From the correct perspective, we can see how God acts to punish the proud and save His people. And this change in perspective can help with our own pride too. Um, As God's people, the temptation we face is to zoom in way too far on ourselves and and feel pride for our actions, to look too closely at our own lives and, and say, I'm the best, I'm so clever, I'm so generous, I'm so humble. It's very easy to fall into pride without even realizing. Uh, in fact, I've experienced this myself a bit lately. Uh, a couple of months ago, my brother-in-law moved in with us, and, and he's staying with us. And I'll admit, I felt rather good about helping him out in a tricky situation. It uh, gave me a measure of pride. Like, aren't I so selfless? Probably not a lot of people would, would be as generous as I'm being. I uh, wonder what brilliant plan I'll have next. But over time, uh, God has shown me His providence. Uh, He helped me to zoom out from myself and really see what He was doing. A lot of little things started adding up, and God gave me some perspective. Uh, It was very humbling to go, wait, I didn't plan this, but it's clear someone definitely did. There's clearly a plan at work here, and it's not mine, thankfully. 
uh, as I zoomed out further, I could see that God had put so many things in place that, first of all, enabled us to help my brother-in-law. There, there were a bunch of big and little reasons why right now is actually the perfect time for him to be living with us. In fact, it just so happened that his living in our place has been just as helpful to us as him. And literally, thank God for the plans he laid out, knowing what we'd all need when the time was right. See, God's providence gives me perspective, and it means there's no room for pride. That's what providence does. When we zoom out from ourselves, we gain perspective to see that we're not better than others. We're not in control of everything, and we're definitely not bigger than God. This is how God acts, through providence, humbling us beneath His hand. And really, that's the answer for pride. If you want to feel less proud, just look to our God. If you want to feel humble, zoom out and see all God's works, and look back at your life and see God's providential hand working in your past. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being such an awesome God. Uh, thank you that you are in control of everything, and that even when we don't see your plans, we know that they're there, and they're good, and they know that ultimately they will bring all your people home. Um, and Lord, we just pray that uh, you help us to see you and, and your greatness and your majesty and just the size of your love and be humbled by it. And Help us to respond to that love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.